This is tax update number seven for July 26, 2005. This is a test podcast that we're trying for recording on the road. This is a presentation given this afternoon at the Arizona Forum for Improvement of Taxation Summer Conference held at the ASU Downtown Center. The presentation today deals with listed and reportable transactions. We're testing this out by recording this today on a small Samsung voice recording MP3 player that I am using to also record this part of the presentation. We recorded it this afternoon as it took place. It has the advantage and disadvantages of a live presentation. The advantage of the live presentation is there's interaction with the individuals who are in the audience. The disadvantage is there was interaction with the individuals in the audience and the problem becomes picking up the sound or questions that are asked and hopefully you can discover from the answers what the basic questions were. We're testing this out just to see how it works with an idea maybe of using it in the future at other presentations that are made. But if so, I'll be interested in the comments you may have. The materials for this presentation are available on the eZollers.Libsyn.com website. You can get the materials. They will indicate this is to be an hour presentation. In fact, it went closer to an hour and a half because I went live rather than with the pre-recorded rehearsal version I had worked on. But again, coming from the ASU Downtown Center in Phoenix, Arizona, this was the July 26th presentation on listed and reportable transactions. Well, good afternoon, and I'll work this mic so hopefully we can hear in the room. Okay. What we're going to talk about today is the change that was put in the law back in the October law when Congress passed all those wonderful little deals that we all remembered in October. There's this little ringer in here that some people overlooked and that became more of a problem that dealt with penalties that apply to reporting or failure to disclose listed and reportable transactions. Now, this was a provision that Congress put in. This is Congress's way of saying we are fed up and we won't take it anymore. That was essentially the response. The game Congress was concerned with here was that people were playing the tax shelter game and were figuring we just won't get caught, we'll fly under the radar. What they've now done is made the penalty for flying, made a penalty for trying to fly under the radar, ignoring whether or not you had anything to worry about if you were on the radar. So we have a nice new set of rules, a nice new penalty, and the danger is this could really trap your clients. Okay. Now, reportable and listed transactions have been around for a while. Key issue is, though, in the old days, old days <coughs> being prior to October of 2004, <coughs> everything that went wrong if you failed to file the reporting form for a listed transaction or reportable transaction was based on penalties that applied, extra penalties that applied on the final amount that was assessed as tax due from that transaction. So if you think about that, that meant if you actually prevailed in your position and there was no adjustment, zero, you know, whatever percent of zero is zero. And if the tax assessed was $1,000, your penalty was on a percentage of $1,000. We now have a wonderful new rule change I'm sure you'll all be thrilled with. Let's take a look at this. The law added a new provision, section 6707A, to the law. And that is a, now has a required disclosure for reportable transactions. As noted, the provisions may apply to your client. 
You may not even be aware of this transaction unless you ask. Because some of these are sold on the theory that, oh, don't worry about this. You don't have to report this. It doesn't count against you. So we can kind of ignore that problem. Basically, we may have an issue. This is a major trap for the unwary. Why do we say that? Well, the catch is this set of numbers, the penalty amount. And this gets most people's attention. The penalty for each failure to disclose a reportable transaction. Now, reportable is separate from listed. Each failure to disclose a reportable transaction is $10,000 for an individual, $50,000 for any other entity, partnership, trust, corporation. Okay? If, however, your transaction falls into that special category of reportable transactions that are known as listed transactions, you get the bonanza of a $100,000 penalty on an individual return and a $200,000 penalty on any other entity. Now, key difference. Remember the old penalty was based upon the tax that was due? This penalty is based solely on the failure to disclose the transaction. The merits of the position are not an issue. I don't care that it works. I don't care you've got this wonderful legal analysis that shows what a great position this was and the IRS is dead wrong. I don't care there's no problem. You didn't fill out the form and disclose it and send it to the right people. Taxpayer can win the merits of the case hands down and still have a $100,000 per return penalty or $200,000 per return if they're a corporation. Partnership trust, yes. Is it per return or per? Per return. Per each, well, basically, here's the hitch. Each time you're supposed to disclose it, it's there. Essentially, the way the rules of work that will go through is it essentially becomes a per return penalty. You. For as long as this transaction is in play, as long as it's out there and there's anything related to it that impacts the return in any way, add $100,000 every year. Okay, what if I've got two unreported transactions? Yeah, then you got another set of rules, so another set, another required disclosure, so hey, run that too. So if you have two unreported transactions on the same return, then you have two penalties. Oh, by the way, and if you have a carryback, if this transaction generates an operating loss or some credit or something carries back due to this transaction, well, each one of those counts, too. So this can get expensive fast, because I don't know about you, most of my clients will pay attention to 100 grand a whack, you know, looking at how many times they got nailed. Okay, well, now, wait, these are penalties, right? IRS, we can waive penalties, right? We always have these things, you know, good faith, etc. we can get out of it. They're not really going to nail my clients. Uh, well, yes and no. Congress, remember, is mad and is not going to take it anymore. Congress has told us, essentially the IRS, we think you've been nice guys. We think you've been too willing to waive things, so we're going to put some strings on your ability to waive this penalty. The IRS has the authority to, to rescind the reportable transaction penalty. Our provision there basically, as listed here, is section 6707A D1. We can, the IRS can rescind the penalty. However, to do so, they must find rescinding the penalty would promote compliance 
compliance with the requirements of the IRC, and effective, trans, effective tax administration. The law provides there is no judicial review of the IRS action. IRS decisions on this per the code are final. Okay, now, I've had a couple of attorneys suggest that maybe that does, maybe you can't do that, maybe the Congress overstepped their bounds, but the older answer that always comes up is, I really don't want my client to be the one going to court to figure out if they overstepped their bounds, let somebody else litigate that one for me. So basically, no judicial review. Oh, Congress, remember I told you don't trust the IRS about they've been the nice guys? Well, IRS has been nice guys, so now we're going to fix the nice guy problem. IRS is required to report on each waiver in detail to Congress. They waited for your client. They have to report to Congress about the details of this waiver and why they did it. The IRS has to, the IRS has to report each year to Congress on waivers granted under Act 811D. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to me to be Congress telling them, we don't want to hear from you. In essence, we've given you the right to waive this, but we really don't think you should. And if you do it, we want you to come back and tell us each time you did. I think we'll, we'll assume for purposes of starting this discussion, I would presume for my clients, there aren't going to be a lot of waivers. If this comes up, you're just going to get it. Oh, listed transactions. Remember them? That nice little group of special transactions? The IRS under this law has no authority to waive the penalty. Remember the big penalty, the $100,000, the nice big one? The IRS has no right to waive that penalty. Congress said, thou shalt not waive. If the taxpayer fails to report a listed transaction, it's a $100,000 penalty, no waiver. Also notice, there is no reasonable cause standard. We don't get reasonable cause for failure to put it in. The fact that I just didn't know I had to do it doesn't cut it. We have a problem. By the way, if any of you, and I don't work with much of this, but if you do, by the way, if, if the party involved in this is an SEC party, public company, the penalties must be reported, must be reported in reports filed with the SEC. Oh, yes, for the purposes of the, now that's probably the $200,000 penalty, so we're probably talking about a corporation. The failure to file this report with the SEC reporting this, in, this penalty is also considered a failure to report a transaction, and we can add another $200,000 onto your problem. Do you have to report to the SEC that you paid the fine for not filing to the SEC? Right. You, you have to report to the SEC that you paid a fine for participating in a list, listed transaction and that you didn't file the report, you must put that in the report to the SEC, and if you pay the fine to the IRS but you don't report to the SEC that you paid this fine, then that's a failure to report a listed transaction and you again have another problem. This was effective, it is currently effective by the way, for returns and statements whose due date was after October 22nd of 2004. So it's in now, yes. Well, it said due date, and as, a, and as the code itself didn't really make it clear which way it was, I would presume an extended due date. The only piece of good news is at least it was after October 15th. So we got a week of a week's grace. 
So the key issue, though, is I would presume if you had an extended due date on October 22nd, I'd probably read it to mean original, but I'd tell a client extended. If, in essence, if I'd extended one, I would have presumed I better file it. Just I don't really want to be arguing this position. Congress wasn't totally clear, and I'm not sure I want to go there. Okay. Now, these actually are rules that have been around a while because now we're going to discuss about, okay, what in the world are these things? Section 6707A tells us about all the bad things that happen to us if we do one of these and we don't tell them about it. What in the world are we talking about? What is this something that we have to tell them about? Well, these are in the regulations under Section 6011 because that's where listed transactions have been around forever been in there, listed and reportable transactions. The disclosure rules for income tax returns are found at 1.6011-4 for income tax returns. They're basically virtually identical regulations for all other types of federal tax returns. It applies for all types of federal taxes. So what we're going to go over, basically in the estate tax area, there's another set of regs say the same thing. Uh, excise taxes, set of regs say the same thing. So gift taxes, same problem. So basically, all of these will apply. Okay. Let's get into, though. Now, I don't know about you, but probably a lot of people just kind of said, ah, forget, I don't really worry much about these transaction rules because my clients don't do it, quote, unquote. And secondly, uh, if there was a penalty, it was based on the amount of tax due and the amount of numbers walled, it just wasn't worth the bother. If anybody got into something huge, I'd be all over it. But they weren't getting anything huge like this, so maybe you didn't worry much about it. Now you need to worry. The general rule for a reportable transaction. Now, this is what this regulation deals with. We talk about listed transactions, but we need to realize that's merely a subset of reportables. Reportables include certain generic categories, then plus this special group called listed transactions. Okay? Reporting is required if, and we got, here's the test, taxpayer participated as defined in the regulation. So they must have participated in the transaction. In a reportable transaction, that's defined in the regulation at little b, and is required to file a tax return. So all three of these true, we're in. The report itself, yes? Required to file a tax return. What, be, because of the transaction, I don't know. No, just generally, this is a person who must file a tax return. They got a W-2. Well, of course, if that position doesn't hold, then you were subject to it. And then you failed to file the disclosure, and then you, well, you know, hey. In that case, you're betting. Uh, you know, normally the catch is we don't usually have a problem where you don't have to file anymore. We have a problem that we've reduced our tax. If you did have a case where the shelter got you to not having to file, then the way the law is written or the code's read, uh, basically, yeah, you're out as long as it works. But if it doesn't work, or if, oh, by the way, the client forgot to tell you about this $5,000 of interest income, uh, you know, yeah, you never have that problem with clients where they forget to tell you about little things like this. Uh, suddenly, you were required to file a return, and we have a reportable transaction, and we got a problem. Okay. Nature of the report. Again, in the reg, and I'll give you these references, because what you've got to do is haul this reg out. 
and start looking at it because this is where the whole thing exists, is inside this regulation. The penalty was over in 6707A, but the meat of your problem's over here. So kind of a misdirection here. We start over here, we end up another direction. Attached to the return for the specified tax is 6011E. Then you must also file, subject to another 200000 100000 or whatever penalty, a special disclosure statement at 4D. That basically goes to the Office of Tax Shelter Analysis for the IRS. So there's another chance to blow hundred grand. Just, you know, a number of places to lose it. So you have to file it two places? You have to file the initial report, goes two places, goes with the initial return, a separate report to the National Office in D.C. Okay, so you've got to file two of them. The regulation specifies the fact of transaction reportable transaction shall not affect the, the legal determination of whether the transaction is proper. Okay? It's reportable. The fact it is reportable, the reg says that doesn't mean it's no good. Doesn't mean it's, you know. But conversely, as 6707A tells you, the fact it is good doesn't mean you didn't have to report it. Okay, what is a reportable transaction? Well, it's got to fit into one of the following categories. Uh, listed transactions, the big one, because that's the one with the big penalty. Those are defined at 6011-4B2. Confidential transactions, okay? Transactions with contractual protection. Loss transactions. Transactions with a significant book tax difference. Transactions involving a brief holding period and it does not fall into one of the exceptions. Now, I'm going to kick back up for a second. The key ones I think we have to be worried about, at least in my practice as a small practice, is primarily listed because there are some in there I'm going to worry about. We're going to go through some of which ones are some of the troublesome ones. And transactions with contractual protection. The third one, because it doesn't have a... It does not have a materiality trigger. There's no threshold here that says it has to be above a certain amount. Any transaction with contractual protection, as we'll get to, is, re is reportable. The listed, we have the special list. Many of the others have limits that kick them outside of most of our taxpayers. The numbers involved have to be above a certain level. Some of them you're only going to have to worry about with high net, with your high net worth taxpayers. Some of them you'll say, I don't care what it does. I don't work with a corporation that has anything near that size. I can skip it. But those two are key problems. Listed and contractual protection are key problem areas. Okay. What is a listed transaction? You know, you might think there's a list. Guess what? There is one. If you go to the back of your materials, the last two pages of the handout, The IRS publishes and keeps updated on their website. The only piece of fun is, like most things on the IRS website, it's really fun to find. If you do a search for listed transactions, it's like it's three quarters of the way down the page to find this list. But the IRS publishes and keeps current a list of listed transactions. What you see on these two pages are all the transactions that are currently on the list. Okay? Officially, it's a transaction that is identified by the IRS as a listed transaction, they use the magic word, in a notice, a regulation, 
or any other form of guidance, whatever that might mean. Basically, the IRS can make something a listed transaction many ways. They name it as such. By the way, note, they, they can put something on the list instantaneously. I tell you this is the current list you're looking at. I should rephrase that. This was the list as of July 20th at 4.20 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. At 4.25 p.m. that day, it might have changed. And, oh, by the way, if it changes, you're immediately responsible. We'll get into that problem, but yes, this list can change and does change. As you'll note by the list, if you look on the second page, this year the IRS has only added so far one transaction. However, notice in 2004, we had, it appears, six transactions added in 2004. Six separate items that were added during 2004. In 2005, we had the sale-in, lease-out transaction added as a listed transaction, figuring that maybe Congress didn't do a good enough job in the law. They're going to now, hey, mention it over here, too. So that's what we had. Key issue. Any transaction that is substantially similar to a listed transaction, and I use substantially very uh, cautiously, because when you get down to the definition of substantially similar, it sounds like vaguely similar, but okay, the official word is substantially similar, to a listed transaction is a listed transaction. So if you have a transaction that's like this, the way I kind of phrase it is, if the promoter is telling you, oh no, this isn't that transaction, ours is different, ours is different is the key phrase they're looking for here. Ours is different, forget it, it doesn't matter. It may be different, but it's still listed. Okay, let's talk about the problem listed transactions for small business clients. Because you look down most of these, and some of them just make your head spin. And if you read the rulings, you really, your head really starts spinning as to how this thing's working and what it's supposed to do. And you go, this is crazy. But there are some very, very key ones. Uh, the first one on the list. Notice 9534 and 2003-24. I don't know about you, but there, there was a slew of these for a while. Any of you have your clients approached by these welfare benefit plans? The, we can put an unlimited amount of money in the plan and we can provide for the insurance and you'll get everything back, we guarantee it, and everything will go for you. And this is the perfect way to get around those pension rules. I don't know, our insurance agents seem to be all over the place for a while selling this one. Uh, listed transactions. There are two types that were done here. There were two different variants, and they're kind of funny. First, these types of, and 419 and 419A plans are legitimate. I mean, their legitimate uses exist for them. And the promoters are correct. We'll give them a second point. That if you structure them, if they meet two exceptions, there really is not a limitation on the contribution. It's not a direct one. Uh, as, as Judge Lara pointed out in neonatology, you know, it's still got to be reasonable. I don't care how we get done with this even though he didn't buy it from the first place, but he said even, even if it had worked, it wouldn't have worked because it wasn't reasonable, but nevertheless. Uh, still, they are correct. There, there's not the type of limitations we see under 415 
We're under the funding limitations for pension plans. We just don't have those limitations there if you meet one of two tests. Test one is you have a 10 or more employer plan. That does not have, basically, that has real risk shifting. So it's a truly an insured plan. There are 10 or more unrelated employers, and what you put in doesn't have anything to do with what you get out. You may put the money in, the benefits may go to this other guy's employees. Okay? That was the nature of this and why Congress said, hey, if there's 10 or more employers in here and there's real risk that this money is going to get given out and we don't know how it's going to come back out, then we're not concerned because we figure no employer is going to put a huge amount in here. You know, they're going to ration how much they put in and keep it reasonable. Nobody's going to use it as a savings plan. Okay? Well, what the insurance people decided was they came up with structures that were purported to be 10 or more employer plans commingled groups, but then said, oh, yeah, but on the side, really, really, your stuff's over here in this separate account, and you'll get all your stuff back, and, you know, there's no way you're going to lose on it. We've got it structured so you can't lose. And the promoters did one better, proving, again, that it's always useful to use the IRS as your marketing tool rather than fighting them constantly. The promoters always brought forth a determination letter showing their plan was approved. <coughs> of course, there was one problem. If you work in qualified plans, you know about determination letters, right? We get a determination letter saying the plan is, is, you know, is functionally the document's fine. Does that determination letter tell you anything about, about that the IRS approves of the cash you jam into it next year? or they approve of the insurance policies you're putting in the plan, or they approve of this wacko investment. It says nothing about that. The determination letter just says... It, it the says document the plan is... Okay, the document is fine. Operational is a different problem. But they love those determination letters because they could walk up to the client and say, I got the letter from the IRS saying this is good. And it appeared to say that. It's kind of like those of you who have ever dealt with the tax protest crowd those letters where the IRS says you don't have to file a return if you have no income, well, they use those. Yeah, I wrote them, and they told me they didn't have to file a return. And they love those letters, too. Okay, well, this is a similar concept that they were using, but it looked fancier, so they're using that letter. Okay? Ten or more employer purported multiple employer welfare trust and purportedly collectively bargain trust. This was scheme number two. If I have a union, I'm a, I own a contracting company, I negotiate a contract with my union employees, my, with the union. And under that agreement, we establish a welfare benefit trust. Well, Congress said, you know what? This is union negotiated, collectively bargained. We figure each side looked out for their own interest. The employer's not about to stick more in there than they have to. Okay, well, scheme number two. Let us take Dr. Jones, anesthesiologist. Dr. Jones, anesthesiologist limited, is the employer. Dr. Jones joins the Dr. Jones, anesthesiologist employees union. Of course, the only employee. And he negotiates with Dr. Jones limited for this trust, funds it. I'm being a little facetious. There's a little more flesh on it than this, but not a whole lot more. And then, hey, we've got this collective bargaining agreement where Dr. Jones limited is funding for the Dr. Jones employees all the employees and the members of the union are Dr. Jones, and hey, we're there. We're under the exception. Anybody really think that was what Congress meant? 
Uh, courts didn't think so either. Those were both listed transactions. I've not seen nearly as much of this recently. But you know what? Every time I talk to somebody when the agent, when this insurance person pushing it got on the phone, their answer always was that wonderful line, but ours is different. Okay? The old listed transaction line, but ours is different. And as one attorney I talked with, we were laughing about it, saying, you know what? We never found one that really was different. But we all, they always told there were. 419, 419A plans, notices 9534-2003-24, those are both covered under this. Okay, one that did become more popular last year. Certain 412I arrangements. Okay? We all know about defined benefit pension plans, right? We've seen the concept. We put the money in, we fund it. You know, we, we fund for the benefit to the employee to be paid at the date they retire. And if you have an older employee, obviously you can stick some decent money away. Older employee, high income, decent money can go away. You meet all the tests. We also know that there basically are two structures you can use to fund this plan. We can fund it insured with insurance policies that will pay that annuity, or we can fund it via a trust, okay, where we put the money away, it's invested, and then that's computed, the actuarial computation is made each year, and we figure out, you know, how much goes in, and we determine how much the contribution will be. Okay, well, 412i plans are the insurance variant. Okay, they were insurance policy variants of the plan. And the insurance policy variants were there primarily for simplicity, the theory being we just bought the insurance policy, they're going to pay it out when the guy gets to retirement age, we're set. Well, what happened was, and if you did that, while the plan with the trust, we have some very specific rules about how those are computed, and the actuary has to live within certain ranges. On the insurance plans, essentially, you just get to pay whatever the premium is. Okay, now Congress's theory is I'm funding a benefit. That benefit's fixed by law. Why in the world am I going to pay extra for the benefit if I get the same dollars out, if I put in, you know, $100,000, $200,000, or $300,000, the same money comes out the back end, why, would I, why do I care how much they throw into it? If they want to be stupid and overpay for insurance, that's not our problem. Okay? So 412i plans... Well, people seized on that, saying, okay, we can now sell this. What were they doing? Again, hey, and one more time, they now have the determination letter in their hand again, trotting out one more time, it's a letter from the IRS showing you how it's approved. You think the IRS might catch on eventually here, but hey, sounds good anyway. One of two things happens in these policies. You've got to look, the underlying policy, the plan's fine, but the policy used to fund the plan, the policy's used, the premiums on the policy are providing for annuity greater than the plan benefit at retirement date. I can pay out X, I've got, I just signed a contract for annuity paying five times X. Okay? And the theory was, well, you can fund whatever you want, there was no limit on the insurance, so you're just paying five times X. And... You know, the question that arises in your mind is, how do I get it out, you know, back in? But hey, oh, we got that covered too. Hey, just, just give us a chance. Or it provides a death benefit in excess of the death benefit allowed under such a plan. So we fund, I mean, we're chumping money into this, into this life insurance. And hey, this is magic because we're getting tax-deductible life insurance. Isn't this wonderful? And unlimited amounts. However much you want to throw into it, we can Okay, 
uh, IRS said, wait a minute, no. This isn't what was meant. It is not considered reasonable, prudent, and, and the structure here was then these plans had magical cash values that kind of dissipated, so we could terminate the plan, take a distribution that was proper, the computed proper amount, and then they would suddenly explode back up in cash value somehow magically a few years after we terminated the plan. It was a wonderful deal. Mere fact it didn't work was the only problem, but it was a great deal. Basically, the IRS has said, if you have those situations, you have a listed transaction. Now, I considered that one to be fairly dangerous. Why? The problem is, what are you going to know about a 412i plan, usually? You're going to know the client adopted one, and you're going to know the contribution that was made. There are some warning bells that should go off for you, though. If that contribution appears way out in left field, and the problem is, and I think this is why a lot of CPAs, especially those not here in, in the Southwest who aren't used to small plans, I mean, they see, you know, you see contributions for a defined benefit plan, you always know it's huge compared to what you see. You've know, you got older clients, you may have a huge number. You're not looking at 40 grand going in. You're looking at big numbers coming in. So I think a lot of them just decide it was magic. It could go as high as whatever. So any number was fine. Well, the client walks in and says, this is our number. Now, remember, what's the problem here? The problem is the insurance policy. Therein lies your problem. You can't really know if a 412i plan is listed or not unless you know what the policy says and the benefits it provides for. Even better, what I would suggest you do, since I'm not really thrilled about reading life insurance policies, is I would suggest on 412i plans you tell your clients that they need to get some sort of documentation from the insurer that it does not provide for, that the policies being used do not provide for annuities greater than the allowed retirement payment, do not apply provide for a premium for policy for a death benefit in excess of the death benefit allowable under the plan, and a representation that this does not fall into this listed transaction category. Because the problem is the life insurance policy is your problem. And if it's a problem policy, you have a reportable transaction. Not only reportable, you have a listed transaction. Oh, well, hey. Then the next one, which has become more of a problem for a different area. This is where we get to similar transactions. Roth IRA structures. Notice 2004-8. Now, as I recall, Grant Thornton was the one pushing this initially. But it was the magic structure where you form this entity and your Roth IRA buys into the entity. That entity buys at a bargain price into your business or gets a business. You start an operating business. You work for it. And magically, all these assets get kind of shoved in the IRA through the back door. So your IRA keeps increasing in value. The equity acquires an asset from an entity controlled by the taxpayer, either by purchase or otherwise, for less than fair value. I take this half-million-dollar piece of real estate and I sell it to my Roth IRA for $10,000. Whatever. I do whatever. Come up with some, some variant on that sort of scheme. But I sell it dirt cheap. And I come up with some method, but I'm, I'm, I clearly I'm stuffing. Now, note, there are potential for arguing some structures used for real estate investments in either a Roth or a regular IRA may meet this test. 
Natalie Choate had an article in Steve Leinberg's newsletter, uh, the electronic version that comes via email you, may, you might subscribe to, a couple of weeks ago that specifically discussed a potential danger. Any of you have had clients approached or have clients who said, I want to buy real estate in my IRA? I'm going to use this LLC to set it up. Natalie Choate pointed out some potential real problems if that person does any work in or to improve the real estate. The IRA beneficiary goes out and personally improves the real estate, works on it, puts labor into it to spruce it up for the sale. Is that person making a, is that, is that now a Roth IRA stuffing type contribution? As further they go, do we get closer to looking like this? And remember, what is this? A listed transaction. And oh, by the way, how many tax returns would that affect? Well, the first one when it goes in and basically every tax return after it until that Roth IRA is exhausted. Because every one would be impacted by that excess contribution to the Roth IRA. Or chalk it up at $100,000 a year. Oh, by the way, if there's unrelated business income tax, didn't the Roth IRA now have to start filing returns? And is that, uh, is that seeing an individual? Listed transaction? 200 grand. So we got 300 grand a year going here. I know real estate's doing well, but probably not quite that well in your Roth IRA. So that's a potential problem, especially when they start pushing the envelope. Okay, certain S-Corporation ESOP structures, Revenue Ruling 2003-6. Now you'll notice in this, from the website, they have links out to the notice. And if you take a look at the notice, it actually, they'll link you to the actual notice which describes the transaction. In this particular transaction, this was the ESOP structure. Transfers of compensatory non-qualified stock options to a related party. Uh, remember the former Sprint CEO his transaction. Okay? But some of your clients might still have been approached by that because that was popular some places of doing this structure of trying to get the non-qualified options off on this 30-year installment note. And so we don't have to pay tax on it for 30 years. Okay? An S-corporation shelter involving shifting of income to a tax-exempt organization that came out late last year. In that particular structure, you recapitalized your S-corp created 90%, you, you take 1,000 shares of, that you had in your S-Corp, you'd recapitalize and issue 9,000 shares of non-voting, 1,000 shares of voting stock. We would then officially contribute 9,000 shares, the 9,000 non-voting to a charitable organization, and we'd have this string to pull it back in. So we'd take a distribution, we had the right to redeem it under a buy-sell later, and obviously, since we had the voting stock, we had the right to control distribution, so it wouldn't really distribute the income during that period. But the charity get 90% of the income, right? And then we buy it out the back end. The charity might have a capital loss, but who cares? And now we have this asset holding it at the end of the time, 10 years, and we got a charitable deduction up front. Wasn't that wonderful? IRS doesn't think it works. Imagine that. Uh, and whether it works or not, it's on the list. So you can argue all day that it works. That's fine. 
that doesn't matter. Even if it works, you didn't put, you didn't follow the reports, you're subject to penalties. The IRS can add to the list at any time. You need to check this list. You need to be looking at this list as we come up on tax season, and you need to be looking at this list from time to time during tax season. Why? First thing is, you probably have to ask your client because your client may have been told you don't have to report this or you don't have to tell your CPA. Think about the LLC invest. Think about the IRAs investing in real estate via an LLC. If a client presumes from the promoter's ideas that it works, why does the client have to tell you? Why would the client have to tell his CPA, his attorney, his EA, anything? It's not your problem, right? Oh, well, failing to follow that. Now, by the way, when the taxpayer gets busted, the IRS comes in and said you should have followed the form, though. Guess where that form should have gone on the 1040? Now, who do you think the client's going to be responsible for fouling up his 1040 and costing him 100 grand? He know he didn't tell you. Well, now, he thinks he told you, actually. He's sure he did, because he would have told you that. He knows. Oh, yeah. yeah. You have to inquire. Oh, by the way, to cover yourself, document that you inquired about these issues. Remember, if the transaction is on this list of statutes similar, the penalty cannot be waived if the transaction isn't disclosed. Practical standpoint, what does that mean? The minute the agent writes this down and says they've got a listed transaction, you, it's not going to be able to be pulled from here forward. Officially, nobody has authority to pull it once the determination. The only way it can be pulled is the determination made it wasn't a listed transaction. You have a real uphill fight from that point forward. Yes? Yes. Uh, what is the uh, time cutoff? Is there a, a pre-existing condition exclusion? I mean, uh, not, 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 not really, because we'll get to the impact. If it impacts the return, you have to do it. So it means you have to worry about it on your 2005 return, let's say. Even if it was a transaction you entered into in 1996, if there still are effects that would have been or could have been reported on the 2005 return of that transaction. Because remember, each year stands on its own. Now, the fact it was entered into prior to these rules means your 2003 return doesn't have a problem unless you amend your 2003 return. Then if you amend the return or otherwise touch 2003, you have to file this report. It doesn't appear that that's okay. If the IRS does it all, that's fine. But you know what? If you say uh, if you make adjustments or you make changes, oh, so or you, you get ordered on a different issue, you get ordered on a different issue. So your return now it's it, it would appear that that's not necessarily a reporting time. Now, now the catch would be though, but you need to be very careful here. But if you initiate any change on that return. Yeah. Then I think the IRS is going to claim, and that could very well happen even in an audit standpoint, I think there could be an argument that you may have initiated something or you may do something. Because you may have been contacted. You may have said, oh, let me prepare that. Let me write that up. Uh, you can get touchy. So watch it on those old returns. Potential neat problem. And oh, by the way, then of course, if you made a change there and it flops forward and you're making amended returns, 
And by the way, if you do that, for instance, and now the state of California has similar penalties. If you did that, and I believe under California law, if you then amended the California return and filed the amended return of the FTB, I believe you would trigger the reporting over there. Because now that amended return you're filing with the FTB because of your audit would be a changed return you're making. Yes? Okay, let's say someone's sitting here is like, oh shoot, I should have done this for the client S. So they go and they amend it now and they report it before they've ever been told. Do you have an issue? Because they didn't do it when it was timely, but they realized they made a mistake and they're reporting it so that they are... So that as, are as the law literally reads, it appears that doesn't work. But I suspect the IRS isn't likely to worry too much about that one. In essence, if you did fix it. I think I think that, but it's iffy. I mean, I, what, what I do then is say, uh, well, the first thing I do when I discover that situation was check with my liability carrier, because <laughs> I got a problem. Uh, then 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 check check ask your client for permission to talk with their doctor to check any heart conditions that might exist, and then sit down and tell the client what happened and this potential problem. And yeah. one of the uh, listed transactions is the uh, non-qualified stock option. Right, swap where you sold it on the installment note. Well, I, I'm thinking of a situation where, let's say, 20 years ago, some guy had a, a right. non-qualified stock on an SO, and uh, he assigned it to the kids. the kids. It was usually the kids you did this to. Okay, and then, then the kids exercise and get the benefit and whatever. Is that something that has to be reported now on an ongoing basis, or? I would say probably if the whole transaction is done, the sales taken place, so had it been properly reported, we'd be in the same situation essentially we are today, except somebody would have had a little bit less money. I don't think you have a problem. But if that note's still open, that installment note was still running? Well, not a note. Let's say you just gifted the stock. Okay, no. If, if, if the transaction basically is dead and buried and all tax reporting would have taken place, in essence, go back and treat it as if it had been reported, quote, the way the IRS would want it. Would it make any change on this year's return? If it wouldn't affect this year's return, I think the way the rules are written, you're okay. If it would have changed this year's return, you know, via the structure, meaning that's why I say if the installment note was still out, so the transaction is still impacting the return because that transaction is still in play, then I think you have a reportable transaction problem. Okay, so as long as it's, it's a closed transaction. Everything's done. There are no more impacts on the return. You're not picking up any more losses or anything related to it. It's done. Then you're probably okay. Although, be careful, as noted, we broadly construe in favor of disclosure. So if in doubt, we throw it in. Now, what's substantially similar? A transaction expected to obtain the same or similar type of consequences. It is factually similar or based on the same or the similar strategy. The regs tell you, receipt of an opinion is not relevant to the determination whether it's similar. You cannot protect yourself by going to your attorney, tax attorney, and saying, is this similar? The tax attorney says, no. The IRS says, that's nice. You're still not protected. It's similar. Meaning, we, can hit the, we still hit you with the penalty. Because the mere fact your attorney told you it wasn't similar, that's nice, that was reasonable, and we don't care. Well, now we don't care, now Congress doesn't care. <laughs> it was reasonable, that, that's good. But now your attorney gets to pay the penalty. Now your attorney gets to call his malpractice carrier, yes. <laughs> so that's, that, yeah, that, that's what you've done is shifted that. It's broadly construed in favor of disclosure. 
Okay? Meaning. So that's why I say we say substantially similar. My theory is vaguely similar. Because substantially similar but broadly construed in favor of disclosure seems to kind of get rid of the word get rid of the word substantially to me. Yep. Seems to say anything similar. If it's even close. If it's close, do it. Okay. Hey, well now those are the bad, bad ones. The expensive ones. Now we'll go to the cheap ones. Only ten thousand a whack. Well, that's no problem. The clients will pay that real easy. Yeah, so you know, they're they're not gonna worry you at all with the ten thousand dollars. Actually I have a couple of clients who actually would think that way, but only a couple who have net worth that would make the ten thousand seem like, yeah, okay, that might not be a problem. Most of my clients would look at me and say, You're gonna write the check. Okay. Well, the first type of listed is a confidential transaction. It's offered to the taxpayer under condition of confidentiality and for which the taxpayer paid an advisor a minimum fee. This is a nice part right here because at least we can get rid of the piddling stuff. Okay, but we will check. That is a broad term, though. Condition of confidentiality. The advisor places limitation on disclosure by the taxpayer of the tax treatment or tax structure of the transaction. And the limitation on disclosure protects the confidentiality of that advisor's tax strategy. What we're looking for here is what the national accounting firms were doing, where they said they had this proprietary structure and you had to sign your life away and promise never to show it to anyone. And then you could do it. And you paid us the fee. If you sign one of those deals, you have a reportable transaction. Which, of course, interestingly enough, means you now have to violate your condition of confidentiality because you have to tell the IRS exactly what the transaction does. Uh, you know, if you think what this means is the IRS just made the transaction illegal, sort of killed it, that was the point of this one. So, realistically, you wouldn't expect anybody to intentionally come under this rule. In essence, anybody who comes under this rule is going to be the accident that people just weren't paying attention. Will still be a considered condition of confidentiality even if it turns out not to be legally binding on the taxpayer. The fact they come back and say, well, the court would never have enforced this, doesn't work. However, a claim the transaction is proprietary exclusive is not a limitation. The, the national accounting firm could still tell you it's their proprietary solution. So long as the advisor confirms to the taxpayer there is no limitation on disclosure of the tax treatment or tax structure. They can still call it proprietary, they can patent it, they can do whatever they want, but they cannot make it basically secret where you can't tell anybody else. Okay, the fee has to be at least 250000 of the taxpayer's corporation, 550000 for all their entities, individuals, partnerships, trusts, etc., except partnerships and trusts where all owners or beneficiaries are corporations, and we're back to 250. So remember, the penalties were higher for corporations, lower for individuals, but this bar is much lower for an individual. $50,000 or an entity, a partnership, or a trust. Okay? The minimum fees are calculated under expansive rules, and related parties are treated as one person. If you pay money, transfer money, I don't care we don't call the fee, it's still a fee for this purpose. Any transfer of funds. Okay. That's the minimum fee. Contractual protection. Let's go to the next big problem one, I think, for us. 
Because this one, unfortunately, doesn't have a de minimis exception. Two ways you can come under contractual protection. Two different options. First, taxpayer or related party has a right to a full or partial refund of fees paid if all or part of the intended tax consequences are not sustained. I tell you, you can engage in this transaction, you buy this shelter from me uh, and pay me a $10,000 fee, and you buy this partnership, and I guarantee you're going to get these tax benefits. And if you don't get them, I'll give you back the ten grand. Contractual protection. Or the second way. I'm going to sell you this, this deal. I'm going to have you enter into this transaction, and my fee is going to be 10% of your savings. Fees that are contingent on taxpayers' realization of the tax benefit from the transaction. Contingent fees. Okay? Now, I will say, they do point out in the regs. The fact something does not qualify around this, we're not making any comment yet about whether you could do it on our circular 230. Different question, different issue. All facts and circumstances are considered in determining whether the tests are met. You will consider the right to reimbursement of amounts that have not technically been designated as fees as meeting the test. You can't just redefine stuff. Okay? Any agreement to provide services without reasonable compensation is also a basically contractual protection. For instance, I agree to provide you representation if the tax transaction is challenged. I agree to provide you to pay for your representation if you lose in tax court. I'll pay for the tax attorney. Contractual protection. I've agreed to do it. I've agreed to provide services. I agreed to represent you free of charge. I'm in. Now, they did put some important exceptions. It's not going to be considered contractual exception. Now, this one's kind of weird. Solely because one party has a right to cancel the transactions upon the happening of an event affecting the taxation of one of the parties. You read that one a couple of times, and you kind of go round and round about what that means. But it's kind of looking for an unrelated event that has some tax impact. We discovered the entity wasn't truly tax-exempt, and that wasn't key to making this work. Or we discovered the entity has to pay tax that the entity is going to be taxable in California. You know, it's an LLC and we discover something and we have a contingent right because it's discovered it has nexus or will be deemed to have nexus. We can cancel it for that purpose, but that wasn't the key tax benefit. That's really kind of what we're looking for. And there is a previously reported transaction exception. Basically, what that means is you are allowed to charge a contingent fee. Why shouldn't they allow? It's not a reportable transaction if there's contingent fee that is based upon a transaction that has already been reported on. And basically, that is a special rule that we're going to go through here in just a second. Now, the IRS noticed that, you know, there were a lot of people out here doing consulting work for certain credits that they were going to give them. And a lot of them were heavy paperwork credits where there was a lot of work and it was all mechanical but the taxpayer didn't get it, but you know, so the point was, I would go out and I'd qualify your employees under these credits, I'd handle the paperwork, I'd jump through the hoops, I'd notify the right people, you get the tax benefit, and then you pay me X percent of what of the benefit that you receive from these credits. The IRS, in Revenue Procedure 2465, issued just after this law went into effect, 
basically bless those. Remember, previously that wasn't really a major issue. They would have been reportable, but there was no penalty because there was no taxes going to be due because these credits, you know, if it was legitimate, clearly the credit was allowable, so there was really no harm, no foul, and the big problem. Now with this $10,000 penalty or 50, you know, this penalty, $50,000 penalty, suddenly it was a problem. So they went back and said, basically, if you look at these at the revenue proc, it'll tell you how you structure deals to do consulting under these three credits and not be considered a reportable transaction. So if you have clients who are paying under structures or paying people to handle this for them under those structures, check that revenue rule and revenue procedure, make sure they're qualified, but you should be fine. If, they, if the people they're working with know what they're doing, they should basically comply with this one. Okay, what's a previously reported transaction? That was our other out. You can have contingent or refundable fees if the following is true. If the advice, if the client walks to you and you give the advice after the transaction has taken place and the consequences have been reported on a filed tax return. If the taxpayer has filed their 2005 return, walks in the office today and you say, oh, you know, you missed this. And I'll go ahead and I'll amend your return and in exchange, I get X percent of the refund. Okay? Or we're going to file for this amended return and if it works, I get X dollars. You know, all those various things. Or I'll refund, or I'll refund back my fee if it doesn't, you know, if they disallow it. That is allowable. Caveat. Check Circular 230 to make sure you can do it. But that'll get you out of this, of this, of this exception. If that, the advisor, you have not previously received fees from the taxpayer related to this transaction. Uh, if the taxpayer previously had gotten fees, had gotten, had paid you fees related to this transaction, you can't use the previously reported transaction exception. So essentially it's an after the fact exception. You've got to have, to have clean hands. This literally is somebody who walked in, it's a return you haven't touched before, and you take a look at it and you see a tax benefit, that basically the transaction's already taken place and you're just filing to get that benefit, then you're fine. But you can't use any kind of odd structure to set it up, to set this up so that you can come under this by filing a return and doing a claim for refund behind it. That's what they're looking for. But if it's not that issue, they're fine. Okay, the next key issue is lost transactions under Section 165. This requires a $10 million loss in a single tax fee or $20 million year in any combination of tax fee for corporation. 10 million or 20 million basically partnerships that have corporations of partners, okay? And then 2 million basically on the individuals, 4 million for accommodation for other, part, for other entities, and $50,000 for individuals or trusts with respect to Section 988 transactions, foreign currency. The good news is these numbers stop most of, our, most of the problems. The bad news is obviously if you have one of these numbers, or you have somebody with the worth, or you have somebody who has a foreign currency transaction where $50,000 is a lot easier to handle than other things, then you do need to worry about this. But a lot of our clients are never going to come near the 165 rule. Any transaction resulting in a claiming a loss for Section 165 of at least, right, note, okay, for Section 90 transactions, it counts whether or not the loss flows through from an S corporation or trust. Oh, by the way, yes, you can pick up listed transactions and other transactions via flow-through entities just for fun. Uh, cumulative loss calculations including only year and into the transaction the five following years. 
So basically, year one plus five following, so we have six years that we have to follow to do our cumulative calculation. Uh, adjusted for any salvage value does not take into account offsetting gains or other incomes or limitations, such as wagering or capital loss limitations. We count the gross loss, not the fact it was limited. Full loss taken into account year is sustained regardless of the fact it throws into a carryover. So you can't get around this by getting into a carryover in year six and then getting it all in year seven. Includes an amount deductible to another provision treats the transaction of sale disposition, specifically section 741, sale exchange of partnership interest, 988 transactions. Uh, basically, section revenue procedure 2004-66 issued, again, November 16, 2004. Uh, exempts from the coverage if asset is not disqualified for section 021, has a qualifying basis, 022. Basically, if you have a taxpayer that might have section 61, 165 loss to $10 million, etc., go back and check this revenue proc to see if your asset falls under this set of exceptions. I figure it's not relevant for most of us, so I'm not going to go into much detail on this particular exception. But if you have it, go take a look in here before you decide you have one. Significant book tax difference. Another one that my clients aren't likely to hit very often. Uh, a $10 million difference between items between book and tax purposes. You have a significant, you basically have a listed, you have a reportable transaction. Book is con considered United States GAAP unless the entity does not maintain U.S. GAAP books for any purpose. And the difference calculation ignores any reserve for taxes. You know, many cases we're required to report transactions net of taxes on the financial statement. Uh, remove the net. For this calculation, take the net out and add it back in. So you don't, we don't do the net of taxes calculation. We do the actual calculation, the calculation before taxes. Applicability of book tax is applicable to entities reporting our Security Exchange Act of 1934. Assets, entities with gross assets in excess of $250 million at the end of the year, not going to be an issue for most of my clients. They're not public clients, and they don't have gross assets in excess of $250 million. So, hey, that one's nice. I can skip that one for the most part. Okay, and also... There are 35 transactions that don't count. If you're a corporate controller for a large entity, uh, there's a list. Again, go back to this list. If you have a book tax difference, you're looking for the 35 things you cannot. You can just say, forget it. We don't worry about these. Consult this list. If you appears you're in the book tax, realize you're in, then go back get this list. Brief holding period. Claiming a tax credit in excess of 250000 includes a foreign tax credit. Underlying asset giving rise to the credit is held for 45 days or less. Does this sound like a tax shelter? Yeah. And applying the principle section 246, C3, and 4 to determine the holding periods. So basically, if you're protected from loss, if you do a wrapper here to kind of keep yourself from having any real loss exposure so we can get past the 45-day periods, the period you're not exposed to loss under those rules is pulled out of the mix for counting 45 days. Okay, another case, if you're subject to it, there are four fact patterns in this revenue procedure that will be excluded. Check the list if it appears you have an issue here. You really need to take a look and see if there's a problem. Again, I think for most of us, this one is simply not going to be an issue. But if it is, make sure you take, you take a look there. Okay, well, how do we get out of this? Maybe it's just not how do we get out of it being reportable. Well, you can get out, remember, if it's an exception based on a ruling. 
An otherwise includable item, as we found with these rulings, can be excluded by the IRS. They can simply announce, okay, we know this technically meets the guidance, but we exclude it. It must be published guidance. Calling the IRS helpline and hoping you get that 35% chance, or the greater probably than that on this question, of the person on the other phone saying, I know, I don't know what it is. Well, I don't think it is. That's not good enough, okay? So, no, the taxpayer cannot play the call the call the IRS helpline roulette to get out of listed transactions. Can be done as a private letter ruling, but only for the taxpayer that requests it. Your client, client A, gets a private letter ruling in this transaction. IRS says it's not reportable. Has no impact on client B. Client B has got to go get their own ruling. Okay? So the fact the private letter ruling came out and said this was fine, how much you want to bet the promoter's not going to walk in the door with that one too. I got a private letter ruling. Uh, doesn't help you. Now, the IRS issued a set of exclusion rulings on November 16th. So there are a set already out. And they have the right to issue more. Okay, what is participation then? We've got a transaction. Remember, we've got to report it during any year we participate in it, right? Trigger for reporting. Defined at 6011-4C3, little i. I love when the numbers get down this deep. For each type of portal transaction, followed by examples in little 2i. There are multiple layers of taxpayers that can participate in the same transaction. It can pass through. Both the pass-through and the shareholder or partner may have to report this thing separately. You participate in a listed transaction. That's considered the major problem. If the return reflects the tax consequences or tax strategy of a listed transaction, consequences or strategy doesn't have to have an impact on the bottom line necessarily this year, but it affects the consequences. Taxpayer knows or has reason to know, and I love that. Taxpayer knows, but if we can't show they know it, they should have known. The taxpayer's tax benefits are derived directly or indirectly from a listed transaction. Okay? IRS, by published guidance, may expand the list of participants in a, list, in a particular listed transaction. They can say it's more than the standard definition, and they have with some of the rulings, you'll see in some of the listed transactions, rulings on their page. If you follow them, they're going to expand the group. Note that it can pass through. That's key as well. The listed transaction problem passes through the partners and the shareholders. and So guess what? You got that K-1 for the client? Did that partnership participate in a listed transaction? If it did, then your client has a reporting field. Well, did the client hand you all the documents it got from the partnership during the year, or did it just hand you the one-page K-1? Probably just the K-1. <laughs> Why they saw that page saying you've got to turn yourself into the IRS, what are I don't know. I know some clients that might see that page and say, rip, dump, here. You can look at this. Uh, nevertheless, can be a problem. Watch out for that. It also means make sure you actually check. The client might hand it to you. Some of mine hand me just about everything. Mm -hmm. I've seen all kinds of neat things come through. I always love it when I have the current auto registration. Mm -hmm. So I hope it didn't get stopped. Uh, <laughs> seen that one more than once. Uh, yeah, oh, good. It's like that. Oh, they just dropped that by. They mailed it in. That was nice. Uh, basically, though, check that stuff because you don't want to miss it. If the partnership mentions they have a listed transaction, you need to report. You need to report. Penalty for failure to report it? 
By the way, you think if the partnership wrote the partner and said you need to report that the taxpayer knows or has reason to know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the IRS has a slam dunk now. Uh, yeah, $100,000 penalty. Just, you know, start writing the check. Listed transaction participation. Confidential transaction. Taxpayer's tax return reflects the tax benefit from a confidential transaction. If partnership, S corporation, or trust disclosure is limited and the partners, shareholders, or beneficiaries disclosure is not limited, then in the entity and not the individuals participate in the transaction. Now, watch that. That's dual. If the partnership can't tell anybody, but the partners can, then it's not then it's not a listed transaction for the partner. But if the partners are also kept from telling, then it is a listed transaction. Then it's a confidential transaction. So that's a pass-through issue. In essence, they did say you can't be held accountable for something you were never told. Now, you know, so essentially that would be the key because the theory here is the partnership couldn't tell the partners, so how could, you know. But theoretically, you need to show the partners could have told had they not, you know, so they didn't have any restriction on them. <laughs> Remember, whether or not that restriction is enforceable under state law or federal law or any law, if there was a restriction on them telling them of any sort, the IRS is in. Return reflects the tax benefit, the contractual protection, and the taxpayer's right to full or partial refund is contingent. If only pass-through may get a refund, only the entity reports. If the if the partners can get the individual has a right to refund personally, then the partnership, the partnership or beneficiary would also have a reportable transaction under the contractual protection. Loss transaction, loss exceeds limits. You measure for a pass-through, you measure each partnership or beneficiary allocable share of the loss not netted or limited by other rules, and the entity itself runs its own test. Again, your clients aren't likely to meet this one. The entity could, but they won't. Meets test for book, tra- book tax difference has participated. Ignore differences that exist solely because the entity is consolidated for book but not tax purposes. <coughs> so you have an entity that must consolidate under FASD or FAST 47, but doesn't qualify under the tax law. You don't worry about those differences, okay? Brief asset holding period, report it on the return test. If it's there, if it's on the return, you're fine. You have to come in. If it's a pass-through, you test independently at the partnership, partnership or beneficiary level for the individuals on a pass-through. So if the entity has to report, then we see if enough pass through the partners, the shareholders, for them to report. Foreign corporations, there are some special rules there. You do an as-if test generally to see if it was domestic for book, except for book tax. For book tax, only account for reduced income exclusion available under the various code sections. Uh, five-year limit on accounting participation via the provision of four share of a foreign corporation. If the reporting shareholder is United States share of a foreign personal holding company or a controlled foreign corporation or 10% shareholder in a qualified electing fund in 1295. Okay, what do we have to file? Let's finally get down to the what of this. Okay, we now we know we participated. We know we are in. We know we need to file. Now the question becomes, what do we have to file? Found in section 1.6011-4D. Regulation is clear. You must use IRS form 8886 or its successor. 
You can't report plain paper. You can't report any other way. You must report on the IRS form. You must follow the instructions to the letter. You must attach it to the appropriate returns. You cannot shortcut this via any other disclosure. The fact you might have to disclose this under another provision in the code doesn't count for this. You've got to use this method plus anything else you have to do. Yes? So if the, if the transaction itself is reported on the return, you still have to file the... You still have to file this form and note that you have a listed or reportable transaction even if all details of the transaction are reported on the return. I mean, you attach the contracts, the documents, you, you attach the non-disclosure agreement. You know, you gave everything. You still got to follow this form with it, okay? Must attach the disclosure statement to the return for each year the taxpayer participates in a reportable transaction. Must attach to each amended return that reflects participation in a reportable transaction. And the first year you file it, you have to file the Office of Tax Shelter Analysis as well. So extra copy to them. Fail to file that copy, $100,000. You know, hey, you know, we're throwing a $100,000 penalty just real easy under these rules. If it results in a lawsuit is carried back, you must attach disclosure to each applicable to each application tentative refund or amended return file. Fail to do so, there goes another hundred grand. Ah, now this comes up. You know, the IRS can add to the list at any time. What if the IRS now decides the transaction you entered into on in 2004 and have already filed and reported the return for is listed? What do you have to do? Taxpayer's same transaction was not listed in a transaction when return was filed. Oh, by the way, what does that mean if the IRS the IRS has come out and noted a transaction was listed transaction on April 14th? You have to report it on the return you file the next day if you haven't yet filed. But if you filed it the day before? If you filed it the day before, and you can prove it was filed, meaning, of course, you have the certified mail receipt right as date of filing, you've got something to prove the date, then you're probably okay under these rules. If you can't show the date it was filed, the IRS will claim it's the date they received it, which was after the date they issued the notice, which means, oh, $100,000, please. Okay. But you filed this return, it is filed and done. The IRS later publishes guidance making it a listed transaction and the statute has not run on the final return reflecting the tax consequences of the strategy. So there's your test. We still have an open year at the time the IRS issues this notice. Okay? Then, disclosure statement must be filed with the return next filed after the date the transaction is listed. The next piece of paper you send to the IRS, return, uh, estimated tax payments, I believe we can ignore, but the next return you send to them of any sort for this taxpayer, you need to file your disclosure. It says next return. The way I read that, I think it's literally it means virtually since payroll taxes count too, the 941 could get you into trouble. That could be the next thing to file. Even though it's a totally different tax. Uh, so could you get around the potential penalty by Well, you attach to the 941 and, and say, well, I'm doing this because that looked like the next return I was filing. I'm filing it with you guys. 
That's true even if the transaction does, even if the taxpayer does not participate in the transaction on that return. You probably didn't participate in the transaction on the 941. But you need to file it. Generally, it'll be an income tax return. You look at the next year's income tax return. But if you file an amended return or anything else, basically the next chance you've got to send a document to the IRS, you need to ship this thing in with it. If the transaction becomes a legitimate cumulative loss, as your tax disclosure statement, the year in which the threshold is crossed, and any subsequent return, that makes sense. Taxpayer must disclose under these rules, even taxpayer plan disclosed under other guidance. This isn't horseshoes. Close isn't good enough. Doesn't work. Cannot argue the IRS knew or should have known about the transaction based on other disclosures. That does not protect you. The fact the IRS already knew about that, that's nice. Uh, doesn't matter. By the way, one key issue that could come and rise on that part, you know, what if the IRS is examining you on this issue and you're still filing returns? You know, the transaction is still open. Uh, don't forget to attach this to all the returns you're filing from here forward. Don't stop filing them just because the dang issue is now under exam. Uh, yes, it's clear the IRS knows about it, but the rule says it really doesn't matter if they know about it. You keep reminding them. <laughs> just in case they forget, you remind them. Okay, the taxpayer, now this is good. You can ask whether I have to tell them. That gets pretty good. So I can ask for a private letter ruling on whether I have to tell you. Remember, that was one of the exceptions. Must request on or before the date when disclosure would otherwise have been required. Okay, you've got to request it on or before that date. So you have to file for your letter ruling request Do I have to tell you. Now, this seems to boggle my mind about going and asking the IRS whether I have to tell you because I'm going to tell you everything I'd have to tell you if I told you. But just in case, I'm going to find out. I really think that promoters are going to do this primarily to say that, see, I got it clear, there wasn't a problem. If so, the obligation to report will be suspended until 60 days after issuance of the ruling or the request is withdrawn. The IRS may, at its discretion, treat the ruling request as satisfying disclosure obligation. They can elect to say, well, okay, yeah, we know about it, don't bother us anymore. Remember, the PLR only requires the taxpayer requesting the ruling. You can't piggyback so I can't send a test ruling up. Taxpayer can, secondly, request a ruling on the merits. Let's ignore whether I have to report, just does it work? Okay? Again, on or before the date disclosure would have been required. Disclosure satisfied as so long as the request fully discloses all relevant facts related to the transaction that would otherwise require to be disclosed. Okay? If you do that. So this is the second ruling option. I can ask them to rule the dang thing works. Okay? Even though it's protected, I can ask for a ruling that it works. Taxpayer can file a protective disclosure. I don't know if i got to disclose. I'm throwing this in just for fun. Okay? You have the right to do that under 1.06114F2. You fully disclose like you would whether you had to disclose or not, but you indicate you're unsure whether you need to disclose. Again, we're going to say, I'm not sure i got to tell you this, but I'm telling you everything i have to tell you if I did have to tell you this. Okay, an interesting concept again, but hey, you know, we, we have some odd little issues that come up. Again, primarily probably going to be done just because you're going to be talking with the taxpayer or a taxpayer is going to say maybe 
you know, I don't know if I had to do it in previous years. And so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give you the right to say that my filing, let's say you've got the problem, the client hadn't filed in previous years. And we don't know what the IRS is going to do about the non-filing. Again, with consultation with counsel, everybody's, uh, you might file a protective disclosure for 2005, saying I'm disclosing under the protective means. I'm not admitting I should have disclosed in 04, but I am filing a protective one for 05. So if that was a problem, my problem is at least limited to the one year in question, the 04 year. By the way, failure to disclose a transaction also keeps the statute open on the transaction. So the IRS can still challenge until you file a disclosure. That is the one reason, not really related to this penalty, but that is the one reason why you might, if you had a taxpayer you discovered back in 2004, you know, back in 2000 had participated in one of these, why you might want to disclose it and file the late disclosure is you start the statute. Unfortunately, you know what, if I tell the IRS back in 2000 I participated in this tax shelter, I participated in this deal that was the thing that got the Sprint CEO thrown out, it might be noticed. You might, you know, it's just, just an issue, but hey. But technically the statute will keep open until you file this document. Okay, now the problem is... Just the statute for the penalty or the whole... Well, the statute for the whole transaction. So you notify them. But yeah. not the whole return. Not the whole return, just the issue in question. Theoretically, it doesn't close on that issue. Uh, and that's a separate problem under the rules. Kind of a messy one. Uh, but now the practical problem I think we face, all of us face, is now what do we do? You know, what do you do about this problem? Uh, what I've done, and this is just what I've been doing with my clients, and your mileage may vary, I have added in our annual tax organizer questionnaire a page that actually briefly discusses this. I have indicated I want to know specifically on the listed transactions that I think might really have come in front of them, the 412Is, the 419s, and any special entities they're setting up with IRAs that they did for some reason. I have a checkbox, yes or no, I've done this. Let them check it off, no, at least they've been told. Also, has anybody offered you protection on a position? Did they promise you a tax benefit and say if you didn't get it, they'd give you some sort of refund or benefit? Ask the question. Uh, you know, because you might have been told, I don't care, I just need to know if you did or didn't do it, and we'll discuss at the issue. And I make clear to them, the penalties for this are the penalties we're talking about. For an individual, $10,000, $100,000 for each time we should have said something. So that's the penalty. And finally, I add a caveat in my engagement letter that I can't be responsible for transactions you don't tell me about. And you better make that clear. You, you have a responsibility to inform me of all transactions you enter into that have a tax, that have a claim tax benefit, or somebody told you had a tax attribute. Yes, I will charge for the work I do in that area. Thank you. You don't want to pay it. You just took the risk of a $100,000 penalty. Okay, you don't want to pay for me to look at something, then I'm not, then sorry. You're taking the risk of a $100,000 penalty. Don't expect me to somehow magically be able to divine from thin air that you had a $100,000 problem. Okay? The other catch is you need to make sure if you have staff or individuals working for you, they need to be aware of these. 
The big danger that bothers me, because I do have staff in my office, is what if the staff person sees something come by that should have triggered their thought process on that? Have the people you work with, do they understand these issues? Do they understand the types of transactions that could conceivably cause them to have a problem in this area? Or are they just saying, it doesn't apply, it doesn't fit my client? The real danger is many people assume this can't impact my clients. I won't see it. Reality is, I probably won't. For 99% of my clients, I will not see this. They will never come near one. My problem is, at $100,000 a whack for the penalty, it only takes one client to stumble into this to have a really bad day. <laughs> Especially if they've stumbled into it for the past five years and you haven't caught it. It is a very bad thing to run into. Be aware of it. Be aware the IRS is looking at the fact that the IRS has gotten a word from Congress, and the current commissioner seems to recite this quite often too, that the IRS was being too nice about waiving penalties. The Congress has now decided, no more Mr. Nice Guy. This was their response. They are upset, they are mad. The pendulum has swung from the days when we had IRS restructuring and the gent, kinder, gentler IRS. Congress has now say, we don't want kinder, gentler, we want nasty and mean and get some money in here. Yeah, we want people going after it. So that's the basic structure, and I don't know if anybody has anybody, any other issues coming up on that. Uh, you can email me if you have questions at that. Uh, also running a podcast of all kinds of weird things these days at that other site there, ezollers.libsign.com. If you don't know what that is, you can go online and just listen to some discussions on matters. Uh, be aware these are there. I've given you the outline presentation. Get to the IRS website, find this information, and be aware that we have a number of issues that we need to watch out for in this area. It's going to be a problem area. It's here with us for a while, and at least till the first few cases hit the courts and the and somebody screams and a congressperson's uh, best buddy gets hit with the penalties, I think we're going to have this until bad things start happening. Bad things will start happening. You just want to kind of make sure your clients aren't the people they happen to initially before Congress goes back and actually puts in some reasonable cause issues into this area. Uh, any questions? Otherwise, I think I've got my presentation finished for the day. This has been the podcast number seven for July 26, 2005. It is expected that those who are listening to this podcast are able to do their own independent tax research, and the presentation is intended for tax professionals. This was a presentation at the Arizona Forum for Improvement of Taxation, an organization that consists of members from the Arizona Bar Association, the Arizona Society of Certified Public Accountants, the National Association of uh, Practicing Accountants, and representatives from the Arizona Department of Revenue, Internal Revenue Service, and the City of Phoenix. This presentation, we are looking for comments on the out presentation. Please direct those either via the comment at the podcast site or email them to me. This has been presentation number seven for July 26, 2005.